0: This is Sea Power, the podcast from the Center for Naval Warfare Studies at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Our program showcases leading thinkers and doers in the art and practice of maritime strategy and operations, broadcasting their cutting-edge insights around the world and to all the ships at sea. I'm Isaac Carden, and I am delighted to host today's conversation with Dr. Jacqueline Schneider Hoover Fellow at Stanford University, and Dr. Rachel Teacott, Assistant Professor here at the Naval War College. We are very lucky to have them here to discuss wargaming and related methods for studying and understanding war, a subject on which both have written superb papers that are linked in our show notes. The views presented here do not reflect the official positions of the Naval War College, the Department of the Navy, or the Department of Defense. So starting with Jackie. Could you tell us a little bit more about your research background, the kinds of problems that you're interested in studying, and how and why you came to wargaming?
1: So I study what I think some people would call emerging technologies in international security. Now, what really is an emerging technology or not? Up for debate. But I think what all of these kind of bins of technology have in common is that we don't generally understand the way in which they're going to affect crises or conflict. And so when you're interested in a weapon or or a technology that hasn't been used very often, uh, you come into a problem uh, with data. So this is a problem that those studying nuclear weapons have had for a long time. It's a good problem for nuclear weapons that they've only been used uh, twice. But trying to understand when and why they could be used or the way in which they would influence battlefield dynamics means that scholars are kind of left with making theories up, sometimes that cannot be falsified. So what war games, why I came to war games is I was very interested in cyber operations and escalation. But at the time, um, when I started working in kind of this wargaming world, we didn't have a lot of good data about how cyber operations affected escalation. We had kind of bad open source information. We had a few case studies. Um, and so wargames allowed me to measure and understand human behavior when put in a circumstance and with different type of cyber capabilities that maybe we hadn't seen before or um, that we hadn't collected in a systematic way. Way. So for me, war games were the natural way for me to answer the kind of scholarly, um the scholarly puzzles, but also the policy puzzles. How do we deal with cyber deterrence? How do we think about cyber escalation? Um, so that's kind of how I came to war gaming um, as a methodology. But the reason why I was naturally drawn to war games was because I had spent six years as an active duty Air Force officer and then had spent time at the Naval War College working on war games for very concrete military problems. And so I saw a real opportunity here to marry an art, I guess, that was that existed for a very long time within the military world with some of the social science methods that I had learned while getting my PhD.
0: Turning now to Rachel, I wonder if you could give us a similar idea of how you came to your interest in, in wargaming and related methodologies. And then also just kind of give us a sense uh, for the the uninitiated, what is a war game? Who plays in war games and for what purposes?
2: Sure. Uh, well first thanks for thanks for having me on Sea Power. And it's great to share the share the mic with, with Jackie as well. So I came to War Games by way of campaign analysis, actually. So a few years ago, a colleague and I wrote a paper on how do you develop and use simple models to try to learn things about hypothetical wars. And that paper really kind of got me going on methods for understanding war more broadly. And campaign analysis really focuses on essentially the in-between decision points. Uh, It focuses on let's either assume that different actors will decide things in a certain way, and what does the interaction of military force look like if you assume those decisions are made in that way. Uh, and what I really wanted to learn more about after kind of getting through uh, work on campaign analysis was more, well, let's actually focus in on the human decision-making side of things. Because in campaign analysis, you often reach this critical juncture where if a particular decision is made by an actor, like uh, a state decides to give the United States access uh, to to its to its territory, then the war might go in a very different way. But campaign analysis isn't a very good tool for thinking through what would what might shape that access, cooperation, decision. And so wargaming is, is, I think, a way, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this at length, to really start to study just the human side of, of conflict.
0: Excellent. So yeah, let me throw that then back to Jackie to unpack a little bit more about how wargaming differs from other methods for studying warfare. And we had a little bit of an intro to campaign analysis and where that fits in. But what is the structure of a war game? Is there any defined way that they need to be set up? And what are the kind of guidelines between them and and something else? Types of problems are most susceptible to being treated with a war game as a methodology.
1: Yeah, and I think this question of what a war game is, is actually far more contested than you would think. I mean, it seems like an easy, like obviously we know what a war game is. And yet when you hear war game used or when you see it used in practice, it actually covers this like wide gamut of different types of activities. So on one hand, you have like board gaming or computer gaming, things like risk or, you know, um, very like complex hexagon with little icons, you know, this like very concrete thing um, It looks like campaign games, right? Or strategic campaign games. On the other side, you have things um, that might nicely be called seminars, but are kind of less nicely called bog sats, where you have people... It's basically a structured brainstorm, right? And then you have some people that are really just running iterated models and calling them war games because they are an element of games. So this question of like what a war game is, is actually really complex and then like what makes war games different from other types of like experimental gaming, you know, that you might do for like psychologists, for example. And so I think, you know, I'm going to draw really heavily on work that I did with my um, much smarter co authors, Eric Lynn Greenberg at MIT and Reed Polly at Brown university um, in the European journal of international relations. But we defined war games um, as an activity that immerses human players, so this isn't a computer just iterating over and over again, in interactive scenarios, so that makes it different than like survey questions where you're actually interacting with the scenario, where these humans make decisions in accordance with given rules and react to the consequences of their traces. So, that definition leaves a lot of room for how many players, types of players, types of moves, whether it's a running time or a move step for how we adjudicate. There's a, there's a lot of like space in there. But at its core, Wargame is about human behaviors. And those human behaviors when placed in unique circumstances that allows humans to engage emotionally with the activity.
2: I have actually a follow-up question for you on that, Jackie. I often think about war games as a form of synthetic case study, the creation of a case study, uh, a case study that doesn't happen, you know, that that isn't necessarily happening in the world because, gratefully, war is rare. You have to create, concoct these circumstances to learn things about hypothetical worlds because they're hypothetical. Um, And I wondered how you think about... uh, the difference between essentially case studies and war games and thinking about the lessons from social science about how you develop a a case study that has kind of external validity outside of the case. Often compare them to survey experiments, but to me, the analog that comes up uh, immediately is actually case studies.
1: I think actually the synthetic case study is really a nice way of thinking about what makes war games different than like survey experiments because it's often the, the narrative the interaction, the qualitative that provides the most insight into gaming as, com- as opposed to um, surveys, for example. But what's different is that case studies, you don't get to choose what variables remain constant. I mean, we as social scientists try and look at cases and select cases that allow you to vary some things and hold other things constant. And this is actually the real challenge of doing qualitative case study work because it is so hard in the real world things constant, right? Um, But that's something that we can do in war games if we do it in a deliberate way. But that's probably something that's very, very different about how academics think about war games versus uh, war games that are kind of done in in more of like a defense world or an area where there's like a sponsor. Um, And the sponsor is very rarely saying, yes, but did you control for those variables across your your war game? I do want to say, and I should have mentioned this earlier, there's a big difference between war games and exercises. And I think this is a this is actually something really important coming from the, the, the Department of Defense side, because an exercise looks in many ways like a war game, except that the exercise is not testing assumptions within the design. Instead, the exercise is making sure you're better at implementing something. You are practicing getting better at that plan. Whereas games, it's about um, testing inside of the plan. And I think that's a really important because sometimes games can actually start looking a lot like an exercise. Um, And that's when you start losing the randomness that makes war games different than, than doing an exercise, for example.
2: There's also not always just to just to really emphasize how blurred all these definitions are. You, know, you can talk about wargaming, and there's n- nobody tends there, there. There's very little agreement about what a wargame is. But then beyond that, there's very little agreement about what campaign analysis is, what operations research is, what modeling and simulations are, and and it gets even more complicated when you start combining these these methods together. So oftentimes, you know, hopefully there there's there are pushes to try to combine cam- elements of campaign analysis and. elements Elements of modeling and simulations within the structure of a war game or to conduct war games to inform the way that models and sims are written and run. And that, that's a real, that opens a whole new can of worms. So for instance, adjudication of interactions of military forces between moves in a war game could be conceptualized as a form of campaign analysis. That's modeling and sims.
1: Yeah, and the other um, can of worms which we haven't opened but I think our audience would is already probably there is that all of these terms or a lot of them actually have definitions in the joint doctrine world. So where uh, we are debating and discussing I think many people come to it with, well, but there is a definition. There's also kind of where Wargaming fits in the joint planning process and within the experimentation process, which is written in doctrine um, or instructions. Or So there is like a very codified understanding of these things in, within the, the Department of Defense world. And I think Rachel and I, I would say our position on that is we're, we question a bit of those accepted definitions.
2: One, One last thing on Jackie's excellent point there. There's what's written in doctrine, and then there's what's done in practice. Mm. And I'm sure our listeners understand that what's written in doctrine is not always or indeed usually what's done in practice. And so this the same goes for war games. The definition of a war game um, might be written in doctrine, but what different parts of the interagency are calling war games might or might not actually align with that definition.
0: Right. And I guess this brings us naturally to the questions about uncertainty, which is how do we deal with missing or unknown parameter values, probabilistic information, idiosyncrasies of individual decision-making, and especially if we're talking about the conduct of warfare, the inevitable friction, fog, chaos that accompanies warfare. Presumably, wargaming is a method that's designed expressly to try and wrestle with some of that uncertainty. And I'm curious, maybe I'll turn to Jackie first to help us think a little bit about what what uncertainty means in the context of the game, how you work with that, how it limits, or how it enables wargaming as a method.
1: Yeah, I mean... um... There is a uh, old paper from a scholar at University of California, San Diego, Eric Gardsky, Um And I, I think it's his best work, actually. And the title is uh, War is in the Uncertainty Term, or War is the Uncertainty Term. And so um, when we're talking about something that is as uncertain as war, um, it would be ridiculous to say that wargaming can um, get rid of that uncertainty term. And I think for those who advocate that wargame is predictive... That's a problem because it's basically saying that you're getting rid of the uncertainty term. I think that war games give us better understanding of the parameters of the uncertainty term when done with control. And I think how you have a better understanding of the parameters of that uncertainty term is by doing two things. One is iteration. Um, there's a wonderful quote from Admiral Nimitz that everybody who's worked inside the Naval War College knows um, when he's talking about the inner war years and the games that they played over and over and over again in between World War I and World War II. And what Nimitz says is we play these games so many times, so many different iterations, so many different ways that really there was nothing that surprised us except kamikaze drones. And, you know, at its best, that is what iteration and gaming done at iteration can give you is a better sense of kind of what the possible outlays are but i um hesitate when people think that games are going to provide a way in which to like overall decrease the uncertainty about a potential outcome
2: So Jackie, I'm really glad you brought up prediction, because that's something I've been meaning to talk to you about. We've kind of we've almost talked about it in the past a few times, so now we get the chance. So okay, so for me, there's a big difference between deterministic prediction and probabilistic prediction. So, if you're a good Bayesian, if you update your priors with new information, you could go from saying, I have no idea how something will go, to now I think because I saw this one data point, I slightly update my prior and I think it might actually go in this direction, but I'm still very uncertain about it. But whereas I was entirely blind before, now I'm slightly less blind. Uh, So, that to me is kind of, I wonder if you really think that you cannot use games to predict anything, or if what you're arguing against is the misuse of games the overclaiming from games that we often see in the press or you know there's there's oftentimes people will come out of a game and say now we've learned how the war is gonna go and we can all kind of you know now we know what to buy now we know what to worry about and that certainly is overclaiming and that's that's essentially like a deterministic prediction but if you do the excellent work in war games that you've done you iterate many times you use randomized treatments. You're running controlled experiments with many iterations. Are you not updating your priors about how you think something would go under certain conditions? That, to me, fits the definition of prediction.
1: Okay, so you're right. Um, (laughs) And, you know, but I tend to, when I'm talking about the power of war games, especially publicly, to be extremely cynical about their predictive quality because I don't you and I are having a very nuanced conversation here about like deterministic versus probabilistic. And I think that often gets lost. And the thing with board games is they're such a strong experiential tool. I mean, done at their best, you really feel them. Like you emotionally connect with them. That's why they're so great for teaching. But they're also like great devices in order to be used as a polemic, right? To convince different groups of people about different policy outcomes. I mean, I've always said that if you looked at what sponsors in the DOD want from their war games, you learn far more about bureaucratic politics than you ever than what these games actually tell us about campaign outcomes, right? I'm an Air Force reservist. Every time I see the Air Force release unclassified information about a war game, I think, oh, well, they want to buy that platform, right? Because otherwise they just hold on to it. Like that would never get released, you know? So there's this very strong experiential quality, which I think leads to, especially individuals playing in games, feeling like they can be predictive based on how strong their emotional response to that game is. And especially games that are like very may not be controlled very well but are also extremely realistic they have what we would call in social science um they seem to have high external validity because they are simulating so closely um what we envision this these decision-making processes to be so yeah rachel's absolutely and completely right and i completely agree with her but i
2: <laughs> just trying to get you not to undersell the method well, that I mean, you do so, so let me well. let me
1: on that point, so I ran this, this last set of war games with like 580 players over three years. That gives us a lot of iteration. And what I will tell you, the game is about how cyber vulnerabilities in nuclear command control and communications affected decisions to use nuclear weapons. And it was completely unclassified and it was played all over the world with a really large groups of ty- different types of people. So good news story out of that is in, I, you know, a huge percentage of my games, like, of my games, nobody uses nuclear weapons. So I can go to a policymaker and say, this is great. Like 95% of the time, like they are not using nuclear weapons despite this big cyber vulnerability I give them and big cyber exploit. But there's a 5% that uses nuclear weapons. And I cannot confidently go to a policymaker and say that Vladimir Putin is not that 5%. So I think we have, you know, what you can learn from war games is not just like, here are the patterns and 95% of the time it leads to this outcome, but also you know 5% it leads to this other outcome. And like, let's delve into why that 5% happened, because the personality characteristics of leaders is not random. (laughs) And so, you know, you can't expect that the, you know, leaders are necessarily going to have the same personality characteristics as, you know, large samples. So I think that's why I always caveat that it's not predictive.
2: Jackie's comments made me think of a couple more things I wanted to add on uncertainty. I I think For me, it also starts out from what are you trying to do? What are you trying to say? What is your question? What is motivating the game and how you manage uncertainty really needs to be shaped by what you're trying to accomplish with the game. So some games start with questions or with directives like explore this sort of problem. You know, explore x sort of problem is extremely vague and you can explore a problem without, you know, without really thinking so hard about what your assumptions are because no matter what you're doing, if you write your scenario in a specific way, you are exploring that problem and therefore We're you've explored. accomplished the sponsor's goal in the game. If you're trying to answer a precise question about how how escalation is shaped by whether a pilot is shot down by uh, with a human in the loop or without a human in the loop that is a much more precise game with a very specific treatment which is autonom- autonomy or not and that really that needs to change how you approach your management of uncertainty. Then you to be able to to attribute some effect from that, that uh, autonomy on how escalation goes, you need to deal with all, all the possible confounding factors that could explain the variation, escalation decisions that you see. And so just a couple other things on, on uncertainty management that I've th- thought about a lot in the campaign analysis question. You can, you can think about how to set your assumptions about parameter values based on what argument you're trying to make. So if you're trying to say something like, you know, let's go back to the Cold War, you're trying to argue that NATO actually stands a pretty good chance against the Warsaw Pact, well then you should set all of your your all of your assumptions about how the Warsaw Pact would fare conservatively for the Warsaw Pact, because then you can say, you know, I don't know how they would have done with this, I don't know how they would have done with that, but look, I'm assuming all extremely conservative values in their favor. This Therefore, looking at NATO's performance and saying NATO actually does well, even when I'm assuming that all these things go really well for the Warsaw Pact, then you can actually use that uncertainty to the advantage of your argument to actually claim something. You you can claim something then that uncertainty has helped you to claim. Do you see what I'm saying, Jackie?
1: Yeah, and I think um, what you're saying is actually an extremely important point for folks who are thinking about putting together adjudication. Whether that adjudication is some sort of probabilistic table, some sort of random outcome, or, and I see this a lot, especially in fancy games, SMEs. So the subject matter experts, you need to think about what biases they're bringing, um, because otherwise you might bias in the wrong direction that makes the findings from your war game hard to um, generalize outside of that war game
2: also on on the point of directions of bias pushing in different directions you know you'll often hear terms like playing smart blue playing smart red well if you're playing smart blue and smart red it's pretty different than playing let's play smart blue and dumb red if you play smart blue dumb red and you find that blue doesn't do very well when red's playing badly that's pretty different than saying that when both are performing at peak things go a different way so being really kind of it's important to be very clear upfront about how what your what your assumptions are and what direction they bias in.
1: Yeah, and I think as war game analysts, you need to be aware of that when you're looking at how your SMEs are adjudicating. So, you know, I've gone back in time and looked at, like, um, games over time where we had these really brilliant SMEs come in and realize, hey, actually, they've been substantively biasing in one direction, like underestimating an effect, where there is no actual known adjudication of that effect. Well, that's interesting. If there is no known adjudication of that effect, then we should have um, SMEs that are kind of overestimating and underestimating and shouldn't all be in one direction.
2: Also, the SMEs job is really hard, like, they they often are working under really severe time constraints and basically they're just supposed to do the best job they can do give you know between moves in a game which often isn't isn't a lot of time so there's a lot of there's just a lot of constraint working against me depending on the structure of a game and the complexity of the moves
0: as a sometime China sme I can definitely uh, attest to some of those essentially artificial constraints and distortions of what how, how you would make the decisions but I want to dive a little bit more on on playing red or red you know, Playing playing blue, and worth noting, we tend to, U.S. plays blue, the adversary plays red, allies play green for the uninitiated. But, you know, how, how do we meet the challenge of accurately, or maybe is it usefully, representing adversary thinking? How essential to it is the game that there's somebody sitting in the room who can reasonably understand what kinds of constraints and priorities Chinese leadership would bring to a particular scenario. Like, how much does the game live and die on how those SMEs function in that role?
1: Isaac, we should turn it back on you. You are a China SME, but there's a lot of China SMEs. Do all the China SMEs agree on how China is going to react in a crisis?
0: No, far from it. It's worrisome when they do, and that sometimes does happen. But I think ultimately, if we're being honest, in the case of China, the best of SMEs is is a one-eyed person in the land of the blind, right? We really don't have a lot of insight into the black box and uh, if we're talking about China's command and control, for example, you might randomly select someone from the street who's got as good a take on it as a SME because we don't have any direct observations of it. And it's, you know, you'd like to think that over time you've learned something and you can rule out things that would look unpalatable on, on for a decision maker in China. But ultimately, I think it requires so much so much contextual knowledge that I worry about the, the fidelity of that input.
1: Any. In- outbriefs briefs that I have seen where we have red teams, especially we have impressive red teams. You're like, wow, that person is like such a known me I think there's too much learning that gets taken from. I think there's too much learning that gets taken from how red played that game, instead of thinking it as one data point. Um, I think often um, players take, oh, this is how red is going to act in this situation. And this is where I think, especially for red teaming, having iteration is extremely important. And then being very deliberate about where your expert's bias is. is. Are they a hawk? Are they a dove? Can you bury that in a controlled way so that you have a better understanding is are they a hawk? Are they a dev? Um, I'm running a, a game right now with um, CSAC, uh, which is an institution here at Stanford, um, and we are doing a China game. Um, we're not going to have Chinese players just based on the political situation. So instead of that, we're going to be creating, you know, like revisionist bad guy China and a like not bad guy status quo China, and that will be kind of inserted into the game in like a controlled way. So we're not going to be learning about how china would react we aren't but we are going to be learning about how the crisis develops given these two different china and then you know we can find out later whether china is revisionist or status quo
2: jackie i think that's a really good idea because i think the problem with playing red which i don't think can be overstated is that iteration doesn't solve that problem because if you have the same red smees again and again they, have the sa- they bring the same biases each iteration of the game. And so you can't solve the problems that iteration often solves if the bias is in the same direction each iteration. But what you just suggested doing does start to address the problem. You say, mm-hmm. okay, we're going to reduce our confidence that we act- we're not going to claim that we know how Red's going to play. What we're going to do is say, let's play them this way and let's play them that way. And let's say how does the game go? How does the crisis or the conflict unfold, given one kind of red and another kind of red? And that, to me, is a is a much more productive, or not, not a much more productive, it's an important addition to the problem of playing red that solves a problem iteration can't. So I'm glad you're doing that. Well, we'll see how it goes.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we'll be keen to see the, how that plays out at CSEC, but as a methodological tool to say, yes, we accept that uncertainty in red and in our ability to, to simulate their thinking. But if we choose some sort of control or outer bounds on the types of decision-making, you can start to get a little leverage on it. And I guess that, that brings me to a line of questioning about you know leverage for what? And we've gotten at this a little bit, but both of you referred in, in different ways to sort of the experiential value or the teaching value or the immersive value for players in games or for people who would read a detailed report on it afterwards. And it strikes me that is, is there a tension there between the, the academic rigor, say, the degree to which you can make probabilistic predictions? being the the brass ring for social scientists versus the value pedagogically or organizationally for military or for students of just being confronted with decisions in a way that teases out certain questions? How how do you both think about that? Maybe I'll ask Jackie uh, to jump in first.
1: So I think for pedagogy, it's really important. The emotional connection is extremely important, right? You're teaching something. You're also building games that are explicitly trying to teach a lesson. That's a, you are intentionally usually building a biased game. Um, So that's extremely different than what you would do if you were trying to approach this kind of from a social science way. Now, all of these things that Rachel and I've been talking about are just kind of like good tenets of how you build and design research, whether it's a war game, a case study, campaign analysis. So I think the underlying question, you're a nicer person than me, Isaac. So I'm gonna say the heart, the the um, the meaner question is, oh, like, why aren't we doing any of this? Like, why all these things that we've been talking about are actually not standard practices within most of Department of Defense war gaming. why, you know? And I think there's a few reasons here. One is that quite often, in order to gain what we call internal validity. So internal validity is, can I, by doing this research, understand how X affects Y? And there might be lots of other variables, but I can tease out how X affects Y. That is hard to do when you're also trying to create context so the easiest x equals y is building a very 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 baseline scenario and you abstract out details you control a lot about red team i mean it's just a highly controlled kind of lab moment but those highly controlled laboratory kind of game also means that you're giving up all that um, emotional buy-in, all that context, all the messiness that creates what we call external validity. And that's when the decision that you're making in the war game would be similar to this decision that you would make outside in the real world. Some call it external validity. There's some other words people call it. Well, For the sake of this, we'll call it external validity. So the Department of Defense games, they lean towards external validity make sure you have the right details about the the weapon systems, the red the right red team smees. Uh, sometimes they're quite large, right? It, this leads to big one off games. And I think they're very emotionally satisfying. Like they're big productions. And you, lots of people, lots of really bright people. You've got computer adjudication, you have a white cell, somebody who's paying for that game. Like it feels good. Like you are getting a good answer because you put so much effort into it. But those big games um, mean that it's really different and con- difficult to control. So what we're able to do in academia without sponsors is you can sit on a problem for a long time. So my game, I was able to run for three years with a lot of different type of people, but I controlled for a lot. I had other state versus our state. Um, I uh, didn't have a lot of moves. I didn't have, um, I had what's called a one and a half sided game. So you're not, a. you don't have a red team. You're so... I gave up some of the external validity, but I could do that because I didn't have a, um, a sponsor paying for it that really wanted the show. So there's a bit of a dynamic. And the other thing is you cannot forget how political these games increasingly have become, where the results of the games have direct implications for what the DOD buys, how the DOD runs campaigns. They're selectively released to Congress and the, public in order to generate support for different strategic and operational objectives. So all of that, what we would call the external game, is happening for these sponsored games, which actually makes it even more difficult to do these kind of nitty gritty um, social science things that Rachel and I are advocating for.
2: A couple points on that. So I think this distinction between games for teaching and games for research is very important, because often in the design, you have to make trade-offs between them. For instance, if your focus is on teaching, then you might Interact much more with the players. You, the game designer or the teacher in this context might press players, why are you making that choice? What other options should you be considering? You might be intervening in their thinking in a way that would shape the game that you wouldn't want to do if your objective was was a more social scientific research objective where you would try to remove yourself from the game um, and let the players go through the thought processes that they might go through were they in the real world not being pressed by you, the game designer. So I think this teaching versus research question is an important, it's an important distinction, in part because a lot of the way games are done, they're done for both at once. You know, often that distinction is not drawn. You're often trying to navigate a tension between trying to learn something about how a war would go and teaching the players who have taken time out of their busy schedules to come and to participate. And so that I think is a, it's not necessarily a solvable problem, but designers need to go in very eyes wide open about where they are going to face trade-offs uh, between a teaching and a research objective. And depending on how important one is compared to the other, they might make trade-offs in different directions. Two other points, I games for bureaucratic purpose. So it is, this is, this is you know, a, a sticky subject, but if you're developing a game design that's producing producing information. You don't see me, this is a podcast, but I'm doing air quotes. Producing information about how a hypothetical war might go because it's a hypothetical war, you've got a lot of freedom to design that war in a way that you want it to go. So for instance, if you are a military service that wants to purchase a particular platform, then you can design a game in a way that permits you to highlight the centrality of that platform to the specific scenario that you design your game for. And so that is a big potential problem. And that, that's something that an interagency process needs to be wary of, that there might be agendas behind mm-hmm. the design of games, that the game might not be designed to come up with how a war might go, but it might be designed to justify a choice the service already wants to make. And so it's important to be you know, eyes wide open about that. The last purpose of a game that I can think of, and I, I'm curious if Jackie can add to this list, is the game is the goal itself. Games are really shiny objects for a lot of bureaucracies they mm-hmm. are they attract a lot of attention they get a lot of gofos involved often
0: that's general officers and flag officers
2: if there are a lot of people involved if it's a big major event they look really impressive and so often the goal Falls away a bit. The goal falls away from teaching. The goal falls away from research. It even falls away from bureaucratic purpose to just, well, we did a game last year and now we're going to do a game ad- again. And how do we judge the success of the game? Well, we executed the game and there were no major, you know, impediments. The game pulled off well. Nobody's plane was canceled and, you know, we were able to get through it and everyone smiled and therefore check successful game. That happens a lot, far more than we might like like to admit or believe. And that's another uh, use of war games we need to be a bit wary of.
0: Yeah, the sort of self-licking ice cream cone model of of a game qua game. I guess on your point about hypothetical wars and bureaucracies seeking particular types of outcomes to say validate certain concepts or or ideas, what should we, the lay people, make of the war gaming we see in the news. Uh, It's become much more popular for it to be sort of part of these public demonstrations, but there's one in particular that I'm thinking about, which is numbers of publications over the last several years started referring to, I believe they talk about 18 war games at the Pentagon in which the U.S. supposedly was unable to defend Taiwan. and This has been cited in multiple academic and popular media writings, and I think it's become this sort of article of faith that apparently has been generated out of these un named and and presumably unknown to the authors, war games. How, how should we think about when you hear, oh, they did this war game and the U.S. loses 18 out of 18 times in trying to defend Taiwan? Jackie, how, how do you hear that and how should our listeners think about that type of statement?
1: I think anything that happens within the DoD that is private information that then becomes public outside of like a FOIA or a forced requirement should be considered like what is the political purpose of this? In general, if you don't know or have any information about how games are designed, then you have limited ability to understand the validity of those games outcomes. Now there's an inherent face validity to games in which the US loses (laughs) um, against China defending Taiwan. I mean, there are like geographic reasons why this is a tough battle for the United States um so the other thing I think you have to watch out for is when there is a lot of face validity say like I believe this this is like what I believe is a prior and then this war game had the same result I therefore believe it more right. So when I find open source games, that especially the games that support my priors, is when I is when I'm like, well, let me delve really deeply into this because this already is something that I want to believe is you know something that that matches with what my prior beliefs are going into it. So let's look at it. So I think that you have to like be very careful about generalizing from war games. That said, some war games in. I know of war, war gaming communities that have done campaign wargames very well for a very long time. Where would they brief me? I generally believe them because I, I've seen their methodology, right? I know where the uncertainty term is. But that's just like a very nuanced discussion to have in public.
2: I think there are some rule of thumb questions that you can ask of a game when you see the press reporting on the game. If you see a, a headline that says U.S. loses, you know the first question for me is under what conditions? What's the scenario? And if the U.S. is losing, the second question I have is: Well, in that scenario, did the did the scenario favor the U.S. or did it favor the adversary? If it favored the U.S. and the and if it favored the U S and the U S still did badly, then that you can perhaps learn a little bit more from that game. than if the scenario favored the adversary and the U S did badly, that's this question of external validity that Jackie was talking about. And that goes not just for the scenario, but for every, every part of the game design. So if you can get, it depends what you can get your hands on, but if you, to the extent you can get your hands on the game's design, you can then look through what assumptions were made about you know, operational plans, what assumptions were made about range and precision, what assumptions were made about cooperation from allies and partners, what assumptions were made about all of these things, and were these assumptions Biased in favor of the adversary or in favor of the US, or was it a smattering of all of the above? And what you can learn from a particular game is going to vary entirely based on all of that nitty-gritty stuff that in the game design, which often you're not going to have access to, and that leaves you at a bit of a uh, at a bit of a a, in a bit of a
0: conundrum. If you you just see the outcome of a game or some version of the outcome of the game, you'll have no understanding of what it was that they may or may not have learned.
2: Which speaks to the need for transparency. In games and game reports are much more valuable when they include the, the nuts and bolts of how the game was designed.
1: So if anyone out there is sponsoring a war game and is paying for an organization to run a war game, like you're a big combatant command and you go to a place like Naval War College and you ask for a war game, then I think it's beholden on you not only to want the big event, but to hold the uh, design team accountable for um, giving information about design and for accounting for how their decisions about design may have affected the outcomes in the game. It would be amazing if sponsors asked that of designers. I think it would lead to um, far more deliberative games.
0: Excellent. Well, that segues exactly into the last question I wanted to pose to both of you, which has to do with the Wargaming enterprise and social sciences and beyond moving forward. And I, I've read it as an article of faith that one of the issues with wargaming, one of the reasons that it's useful is because, quote, war is rare. I think, li- leaving aside that, that, uh, not as rare as we wish. I was going to say, leaving aside that measurement question, which I think you could certainly argue the opposite, right now, war is emphatically not very rare at all. There's a war on in Europe, there's a lot of individual interactions on which we're going to have a lot of open, we already have a lot of open source data. And I'm kind of curious, you know, not you don't need to reflect just on the Ukraine war, but just sort of moving forward, what do you see as being the, the new frontiers and the innovative new work that's going on? How are people going to leverage this new, data and what do you expect to see among gamers moving forward?
1: So, you know, I'm sitting in the ivory tower. I mean, literally, I have the Hoover uh, Tower behind me. And um, so I have a little bit of a different perspective than working from inside the community. So I want to tell a little bit of kind of what we're going to do outside the community that I think is going to help inside the Wargaming, uh, the kind of more traditional DoD Wargaming community. We've talked a lot about iteration here in this conversation. And that's very hard to do, but games are happening all the time. And the ability to look at patterns across games is something that, you know, the Department of Defense has wanted to do for a very long time. I mean, Bob Work tried to create a a Wargaming archive um, with kind of limited success. Um, So one of the things that we are going to do at Hoover and that I think we on the kind of academic side can do is we're going to create a public repository of wargaming data. So we are building an archive of wargaming data at Hoover. And that data is going to include, you know, open source, unclassified games like the ones I run or the ones, um, you know, that other think tanks run that we're going to, you know, ask and incentivize others to contribute. But, you know, we're also going to be seeking out, you know, released wargames. And that way you have this ability to look at games over time to understand patterns of behavior. And I think that's something that we can do in academia that is just very, very difficult from inside the defense community. And to be honest, it's kind of hard to do within the think tank community because so much of the work is proprietary. So like the RAND archive is remarkable and yet hard to get into. The other is that we are going to work on board gaming methodology here from a social science perspective. So it used to be what makes a good game is do people enjoy the game? And that is an important part. But does it matter how big your sample is? Does it matter how many times you iterate? What is, how much buy-in do you need to get from players? These are all like important questions that really the defense wargaming community hasn't had the ability to ask because they're um, kind of product focused. So that's something that we're gonna be investing in here at Hoover is investing in scholars and research that makes wargaming better. And then finally, we are going to open up our resources and our extensive administrative expertise to help uh, burgeoning scholars run war games. It, it's a bit of a party planning sometimes, and it can be hard for academics to get into this. So this is something that we're going to be doing. And the hope is that by creating this environment and this um, resource where so much open source work is being done, that it ends up having kind of a trickle down effect on the quality of war gaming that happens in the Department of Defense. and then also kind of validating the classified and closed door gaming that's occurring inside the DOD with what you know we can do with unclassified resources
0: that's really exciting it's uh, a
2: really exciting research agenda I must, i'm i'm Very much looking forward to making use of this repository myself and uh, passing along the good word to the growing community of scholars uh, that are would I'm sure be very excited to to make use of it. Just add a couple things to that agenda that I think would be worth pursuing. One is I think that a lot of the study of escalation in particular benefits from multi methods. So you don't need to design research that focuses, that exclusively draws on war games. You can harness the advantages of war games, uh, which are, I think, control the ability to design exactly the scenario you want to design. You can combine that with actual case studies of, to Isaac's point, wars that are actually actually happening. Uh, And so I don't think that it should be, you know, you're either a war gamer or you're a case study person or you do whatever it is. It's what is my question and how can I harness the methods that are available to me, whatever they may be, to best get after that question. So I hope to see a lot more uh, multi-method projects that use war games in combination with other methods at the same time. I also think that it'll be important to research war games as a bureaucratic tool. We've talked about this uh, a few times, um, but I think that there's a, a lot of work to be done about the use of, uh, of, of war games to advance particular bureaucratic interests. And that's something that academics and also practitioners uh, would be well advised to, to look into. And finally, a lot of the research on a lot of the methodology of war games hinges on this one crucial thing, which is the immersion factor, the degree to which players feel in the game as they might feel in real life if confronted with the same problems. And I think one of the problems we as people interested in using war games face is it's one thing to say that players are more immersed than, say, respondents to a survey experiment. Yeah, sure, no, no problem. But it's another thing to say that the players are immersed to the extent they would be if the scenario were in fact real. And that's a really difficult delta to show evidence that you've closed. And I mm-hmm. think it's a it's a tricky methodological constraint, uh, whether it's a problem or not, or the degree to which it's a problem is going to vary from game to game, depending on what questions you're trying to answer with the games. But I think proponents of war games as, as methods for learning about the world are going to need to really focus in on this question of how you achieve not just more immersion than you would in other methods, but enough immersion that you can claim to have learned something about how something similar might go in the real
0: world. We are very fortunate to have heard some of these insights and, and innovative ideas for developing the field further. So thank you so much for sharing this wealth and knowledge with Power today. We wish you fair winds and following seas. Thank you very much, Jackie and Rachel. It was a pleasure having you here.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us.
0: Views presented here do not reflect the official positions of the Naval War College, the Department of the Navy, or the Department of Defense.